Hi, everybody. This is James Pruden, Editorial Director of Anesthesiology News. And uh, we have on the line today Neil Ratner, MD, a.k.a. The Rock Doc. And I need to set up this interview a, a little bit. Um, a couple of years ago, I moved upstate and uh, looked around for a radio station to listen to and came across Radio Woodstock, which is WDST 100.1 FM on the dial, which you can stream on your computer. And um, I figured a rock and roll radio station located in Woodstock has got to be good. Um, I kept listening and kept hearing a medical report from a local doctor who called himself the rock doc, but also clearly knew what he was talking about. He appeared at certain times during the week as a guest of the DJ. This was during the height of COVID, and I thought he was performing a very important, worthwhile function of explaining medical concepts to a general audience. I also soon discovered that he had his own show on weekends, which was kind of a history lesson covering rock legends. Then one day I heard him casually mention that he was trained as an anesthesiologist, and I knew I had to interview him. So here he is. Greetings, Dr. Ratner. Hello, James. Thanks for that lovely introduction. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm going to do a, a quick intro on your rock life, and then we're going to get into some more anesthesiology stuff. Sure. Um, there are really three things we can talk about. Your rock and roll life, your anesthesiologist, uh, anesthesiologist life, and now your current work, which is really in the realm of public health. Um, we don't have time to talk about the rock and roll aspect much other than to say a few things. First, you were a drummer. Do you yeah, still drum? Um, not so much. On my knees. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you had a lot of success in the rock and roll world as basically setting up production companies that, that did toured with major bands. Uh, you know, Edgar Winter, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. You did work with Pink Floyd. Um, and you can name some more, but these are obviously names that our audience knows. And, and um, just briefly say how you set that up. You know, it was kind of an accident. Uh, in between my sophomore and junior year of college, and I went to University of Vermont as a pre-med student, although as a kid I had two dreams. One was to be a doctor and one was to be a rock and roll drummer. And I had the good fortune that summer to meet a rock and roll star by the name of Rick Derringer, whose claim to fame was a group called the McCoys and Hang On Sloopy. And he had just begun uh, working with Johnny Winter. One thing led to another. Six months later, I was back at the University of Vermont and they offered me a job. I was hoping as drummer for Edgar Winter, who was Johnny Winter's brother, who had formed a band but I was offered the job as a road manager. And I took the job thinking that eventually I'd get to play the drums, but it started me off on a five year journey in the business end of the business as a road manager, tour manager. Eventually I had my own production company and worked with all those groups and more. But throughout that whole time, that original pre thing that made you a pre-med was, was festering away in your brain and you had decided at one point, all right, I'm going to drop the rock and roll stuff and, and get back to school. And you uh, worked hard and succeeded. Did that. You succeeded and became eventually a specialist in uh, anesthesiology and uh, did a lot of early work in office-based anesthesia, which is kind of how you were introduced to Michael Jackson, uh, who both liked your anesthesia but also liked your rock and roll background. Uh, and you became his tour physician, and, and really you became his friend. Um, so that's a whole... Another story. I mean, I, I, the, the uh, um, uh, people listening to this will, will be interested in, in, in all that. 
But um, there's so much going on in your rock world and your medical world, which could easily fill a book. And indeed, it has filled a book called The Rock Doc. And um, I want to give it a quick plug. I read it. It's a very interesting book. Um, I recommend it. Um, it's available where? Is it on Amazon? Yeah, you could get it on Amazon. You could get the audio book on Audible. If you go to neilratnerrockdoc.com, uh, you could buy it through my website. And if you go to neilratnerrockdoc on Facebook, you could buy it through there as well. So the book goes through, you know, the obviously the precipitous highs and, and a few crushing lows in Dr. Ratner's life. And I just recommend you read that and, and uh, learn a little bit of the, the rock world and, and the early anesthesia world, of particularly office-based anesthesia. Um, so the, we're here to really talk not about that, though. I talk about two things. The early in-office anesthesia, which you are really a pioneer of, and then what you're doing now, which is what I heard on the radio, basically public health work. And, you know, I'm, 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 I don't think back when you were uh, originally um, doing office-based anesthesia, there was even a society for that. There is one now. I don't know if you know about it, SAMBA. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, over 50% of all procedures nowadays are actually done in non-OR settings. Mm -hmm. um, so you were certainly ahead of your time when it comes to that. Just give a rundown of how that happened. Um, it was towards the end of my residency, and all of my fellow residents were either getting fellowships to go on to further education or thinking about joining groups uh, mm -hmm. for hospital-based medicine. A couple thinking about the possibility of pain, but none of that interested me. When I was in the hospital, I was very interested in conscious sedation. I was interested in the day procedures, giving good anesthesia for the day procedures, because I noticed that basically surgeons were working on a moving target. <laughs> I didn't think that that was the desired effect. Having been in the rock and roll business, I had an intimate knowledge of drugs. <laughs> But street drugs back then were, were really just analogs of drugs that were in medical right. practice in one form or another. And so I felt that uh, I would be uniquely qualified to go into a doctor's office uh, and give conscious sedation by myself in that office so that the doctor wouldn't have to then do the procedure in the hospital. It wasn't being done. Uh, very much in this country. And the reason being, anesthesiologists, first of all, were afraid to leave the hospital environment and be out there on their own without backup in offices that might not be prepared for any emergencies that might happen. But the other part of it that was really uh, distasteful to most anesthesiologists was the fact that there were no real drugs that were good for office-based anesthesia. And the monitors as well were really better for hospital anesthesia than somebody alone in an office. And what I'm referring to really is this was pre-propofol and pre-pulse oximeter. And so, yeah, without those two uh, aids <laughs> in, in keeping right. patients safe, you know, and, and making sure you have a good outcome, most anesthesiologists were very afraid to go into an office on their own, give drugs to somebody, and have it work out well for them, the patient, and the surgeon. I felt 
that I was uniquely qualified to do it. So I went and did it. Was there any, I mean, did you have, without Pulse Ox um, and Propofol, which would be commonly used, what did you do? What was the, what was the plan B for, for those patients? Yeah, well, the, the plan B was to, you know, manipulate what I had uh, as best uh -huh. I could, which was, you know, Demerol and Valium. There was no Versed either, so it was Demerol and Valium, sodium pentothal, uh, and of course, you know, a stethoscope on the chest, looking at the color of blood in the field. Very archaic kind of yeah. methods uh, to be sure that a patient was safe. But again, I felt confident that I could do it, and I did do it. But boy, was I glad when propofol and pulse oximetry came along, because all of a sudden it was a different world for me. About when, what years were, were you talking about, you know, just pre-propofol were you doing you know, the I, office work? I began, I finished my residency in 1985. And I, um, within a month of finishing my residency, I was working in a uh, plastic surgeon's office giving anesthesia. And so a lot of what you did, actually, when you talk about office-based um, uh, work was, was with plastic surgeons. Uh, I, felt that, I felt that plastic surgery was the right place for me to start because I knew in New York City, first of all, these guys had the money so that if I said to them, I'll come in here, but you've got to fix up this to make it more like an operating room or you've got to buy me a crash cart or you've got to put a, a machine in. I knew plastic surgeons were the right type of surgeon because they had the bucks to do that. More importantly, none of them wanted to operate in the hospital. They were not given any preference. You know, their patients didn't stay in the hospital, so they didn't get good OR times. So they basically hated leaving the office to have to, you know, do cases in the hospital when they realized there was a way that they could do them in their office safely. They knew that it was going to be much better for them as well as for their patients. Also with celebrity patients, which many plastic surgeons in big cities have, it's always better if they could sneak in the back door of an office than have to go through the front door of a hospital. And so, you know, there were many advantages and I knew uh, it would be effective. Um, were there, was there a, a, a bunch of you that, that knew one another that were doing office-based stuff or was it more or less... Uh, you're on your own. Was there any kind of ch exchange of information? You know, when I started, there were very few of us. There were a couple of other guys, strangely enough, from the hospital where I did my residency. I did my anesthesia residency at Beth Israel in New York. And there was a, a Russian guy named Mike Zalmanov, who also went out there around the same time that I did. Uh, other than that, there was no one. Now, of course, once I started and people saw how successful I was because, you know, I walked into the first plastic surgeon's office, gave anesthesia. He was freaked out. He told all his buddies and my phone was ringing off the hook and I was alone. I couldn't possibly cover all these offices. When people, hospital-based guys realized that it was okay what I was doing and there were plenty of patients, I was making money and it seemed safe in the way that I had created it. Um, many more people started to say, you know, I'm off tomorrow. I was on call last night. Do you got anything in the morning for me? And then right. more and more anesthesiologists, when they graduated, realized that office-based anesthesia 
was a real career option. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And that that is actually how you, um, through that, the plastic surgery angle, that's basically how you met Michael Jackson. Is that not correct? It's a funny story. It's actually a funny story. I'm sitting in the doctor's lounge at Beth Israel Hospital. It's about two months before I'm done as an anesthesia resident. I have no job. I just have this idea, but I have no idea who should I approach. Yes, I want to go to a plastic surgeon. What plastic surgeon? I'm sitting there reading the New York Post. I see a little article. Michael Jackson went to visit his favorite New York plastic surgeon, Dr. So-and-so. Well, Dr. So-and-so happened to be a surgeon, at, a plastic surgeon at Beth Israel Hospital. And I said, you know what? I didn't care about Michael. I wasn't looking to meet Michael. I was out of the music business. I was looking to establish an anesthesia business. But I figured if Michael had picked this guy, this is the guy that I want to go to because he will meet all the criteria that I just mentioned. And sure enough, I approached him. I wasn't as honest maybe as I could be. I took a white coat with anesthesia department. Dr. So-and-so, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Who does anesthesia in your office? What do you mean? What do you mean? In my office? What do you mean? I said, a guy like you with patients like yours, you don't have an anesthesiologist come to your office to do cases? No, no. Would you do that? Could you? Uh, when can you start? <laughs> you know, ten days after. Ten days after um, I finished my residency, I started in his office. I became the director of anesthesia for his office. And eight years later, Michael Jackson came back to that office, and that's how I met him. Michael had never met anyone like me. He liked yeah. doctors, and he was a music guy. And here I was, both. <laughs> right. And so it was it was sort of an instant kind of friendship. And then I saw he was in trouble and being a sleep technologist, I felt that I could help him safely and effectively. And um, you, you were you uh, went on tour with him and you actually became, I think, very good friends with him. Um, and, you know, that's all detailed in, in the book. Um, mm -hmm. Let me ask you now about the uh, work you're doing now. So you're no longer actually a practicing anesthesiologist, is that right? No, no. Okay. So how did you get this gig with the with Radio Woodstock? Uh, I moved up here to Woodstock about 18 years ago. Uh, great place for geriatric hippies like myself. <laughs> After I wrote the book, I was looking for some publicity for the book, right? And I, you know, I love Radio Woodstock and, and, and I always listened and paid attention because it was very much within my wheelhouse. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I managed to get them to interview me uh, about the book. Right. And then uh, a short time later, uh, I approached uh, the program director and the owner of the station with this idea that I had. You know, let me do these little stories about the history of rock and roll, blah, 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 blah. The medical thing came later uh, when COVID hit. Uh -huh. I started on the music stuff about six months before COVID. When COVID hit, the program director came to me. He said, you're a real doctor, aren't you? I said, yes, I'm a real doctor. He said, let's talk about COVID on the air. And that's how it started. When I ran out of COVID things, I said to him, because my idea at the very beginning about Rock Doc uh, goes back to, as an anesthesia resident, I had decided I didn't want to be 
a doctor anymore at one point. I was tired of residency. I got fed up. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. MTV had come out and I thought I should be the doctor for MTV because I had the credentials. Every major uh, entertainment, you know, every major station, everybody was getting an on-camera doctor around that time. And I thought, why not MTV? And I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm incredibly qualified for that job. That's where Rock Duck came about. So I had the idea of giving out public health information to a certain population back in the mid 80s. That was the original idea of Rock Duck. That's what I wanted to do. I thought I'd have a show on MTV where I would pick a story, right? uh that had some relevance and then get a rock star to talk to me about that story and that would be my little show i actually went up to mtv carl palmer was the rock star from mc like and palmer it was a story about jim fix a runner who oh, yeah. was this famous runner and dropped dead of a heart attack right. <laughs> you know so yeah. it was a story about whatever uh and then many years later uh i was actually able to become the rock doc on dst which is great let me. Uh, last real question is, is is sort of how do you prepare? I mean, you you um, you know a, a lot of um, physicians I've talked to uh, sometimes you know their vocabulary is is confusing to your average consumer, the average public, and they are so used to living in that vocabulary that it's hard for them to really distill down you know to the to the essence of what they want to say. So how do you prepare? Is it just come naturally to you? To you, do you not really particularly prepare, or is there anything you do to to explain things clearly to people? Oh no, I I am uh, a big believer in being very prepared. So uh, at the uh, beginning of a week, like today, right? Because yesterday was Monday. I did my report yesterday. I right. will start all through the week. Actually, I get various medical journals and all kinds of publications. And I'll bookmark anything that I think is a subject that I think is of general interest to people. And then I will read it a number of times and then take the parts that I want to use and distill them down to the simplest non-medical language I can think of, write it up, familiarize myself with it, and then speak about it, uh, you know, on the radio. Uh, I think you must be prepared and you must think about how to take something that's maybe not complex to you, but complex to the general public. And how do you how do you take it and make it simple? And and for me, it's taking it down to the, the lowest common denominator, really. Um, try not to use too many medical terms. You don't right. have to tell the names of the drugs specifically if you're talking about medications or syndromes. Describe things rather than use, you know, a complicated title that nobody will understand. And I work right. hard on trying to make sure that, you know, um, it works on that level. Well, I have to say it. It. it um, uh, I. I think uh, if I'm not correct, if I. I believe I'm correct. It's about 8:20 or so on on Monday with Gatin. So um, I'll be listening to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let Monday. me say. Let me just say, if uh, they're listening from a faraway place, iHeartRadio. It's the iHeartRadio yeah. app. 
and you just punch in Radio Woodstock and you could listen to it anywhere in the world. Yeah, it's all it's all streamed. Yeah. Yes. I appreciate you uh, talking to me, Dr. Ratner. It's a, a, it's a really interesting life, I have to say. And as I say, you could write a book on it and you have. And it's a very good book. So uh, I appreciate it. And uh, thanks a lot. Thank you, James.